Hello and welcome to the first RC podcast of 2017. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by the same three editors who bid us farewell at the end of 2016. They're all back so, to welcome us to 2017. So we have editorial director Marina Cashton. Hey, Isaac. Deputy editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And staff writer Alexa Gotthardt. Hi, Isaac. So for the first podcast of 2017, we're going to be discussing an article that we published at the end of last year about the 10 uh, resolutions for the art world going forward this year. So we worked on this piece in collaboration with illustrator Liana Fink, and it's really incredible looking. Definitely go check it out if you haven't seen it already. Um, But for the first episode of the Artsy Podcast this year, we have something a little special. I'm going to read out uh, each of the resolutions and our editors are going to chat about each one for three minutes or less. I'm going to be a very diligent timekeeper. So it's going to be kind of like a, a lightning round. And uh, are you guys are you guys ready? Yeah, let's do yeah. it. All right. So the first one, toss out art speak. Go. I mean, I think an important article to reference is Triple Canopy's International Art English, which uh, points to this uh, phenomenon in the art world where one is saying something uh, in a you know, potentially um, elitist way or or inaccessible way and, and probably using, you know, 10 times the amount of words one would need to use to describe something. It's a, it's definitely, in, in the art world, it's a, it's a occurrence that happens uh, more frequently than we'd like. And, and this is our opportunity to say there's elegant ways of, of talking about art that, that doesn't take people, um, you know, a, a while to sort of navigate. Yeah, no more notions of, powerful i don't know i could i could go on and on but i think liana put it really well in her illustration she um the illustration shows a a curator maybe an art advisor explaining a piece of art to potentially her clients or some art onlookers and this this person who's advising says in her recent work, the artist addresses the intersectional nature of the physicality of bodies as manifesting spatially in the world at large. This is the kind of art speak we see all the time. Um, even though the International Art English article came out several years ago, this kind of language comes up on press releases, sometimes even on museum wall labels. Even in our articles sometimes, which I will have, have made a pledge <laughs> to like eliminate powerful and notions of and things that are, that are kind of... Uh, Overly rot. I like framing. Not. I don't like doing this, but I like seeing everything framed as a dialectic. <laughs> oh yeah. You know? mm. Very yeah. good. I mean, we've all done it. I, I remember uh, many a time early on in my writing career, writing some really terrible, terrible things to think that I thought I probably sounded pretty smart at the time. Um, but it's it's a bad, bad thing to do. It just alienates people, and we want art to be accessible. And we, I don't even know what it means half the time when I'm yeah, reading Yeah, well, that's the stuff. problem. It's, always, it was, it's like jargon-laden uh, gobbledygook most of the time. All right, that's three minutes. Next up, disengage with the art world trolls. So I think the point we're really getting at here is um, we have seen in the last few years, not only in the art world, but in culture at large, People hiding behind the internet, hiding behind their computers, and criticizing culture, politics, etc., for the sake of criticizing, um, and that applies to the art world in particular in, in numerous ways, in arguably negative ways. I think we have a particularly kind of interesting brand of cynicism in the art world, particularly among art writers, which is it's like a very disaffected group of people. Um, but 
that I guess we belong to too. But anyways, um, I wrote an article at the beginning of last year about ending cynicism in the art world um, after the infamous Art Basel stabbing and a lot of the coverage that was around that. Um, it apparently didn't really work, so we're trying it again, uh, talking about people, you know, like Jonathan Jones, for example, who'll write something bombastic just for the sake of being Hot bombastic. Take machine. He, I'm, I'm, I actually have a folder of uh, my favorite Jonathan Jones hot takes. Um, you would, Isaac. They're, great. they're really good. One of my favorite ones is, is Kanye West hip hop's greatest cubist? I don't know what that means. <laughs> what I think also speaking to that, it's sort of uh, adding fuel to the fire, being inflammatory to be inflammatory, but there's no productive conversation that happens from it. And often it's thing, there are things that are taken out of context or, I mean, it's just, it, it's just instigation for instigation's sake, um, you know, and for follows and building your audience and whatever. But uh, in the end, there's no, the end result isn't a p- necessarily a positive one. Sometimes it's quite funny, uh, but for the most part, it's useless. And yeah, but I think like this is also about kind of recognizing that even if something is funny, especially in so much trolling, even if it goes on across the internet, it's not just in the art world, is based on untruths and mm-hmm. things that are just actually not the reality. Um, we got to kind of watch out for that. I think that's an important yeah, thing. Yeah, and year. people don't often realize that, and that, and that's the challenge. I mean, we learned this, you know, last year, the end of last year, twenty, referring to twenty sixteen, and that's a very slippery slope. Pope Francis did not endorse Jeff Koons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, three. Remember to look at the art. Yeah, I could jump in here. I mean, I had this experience recently at Gladstone Gallery where for the Jim Hodges show where they ask you to not take photographs. And, you know, being such a connected uh, culture community, you know, your first instinct is to take a picture of this um, this this work that's moving in moving you and, and it's in front of you. And being forced uh, to disconnect what reminded me that that this is the experience that I came for. Um, I think also, you know, as a, as <laughs> some of the things we were thinking about too here is that sometimes when you're taking your selfie, you tend to not look around. Um, and there have been instances of, of artworks being destroyed because of um, careless people. Uh, you know, I, I think there, there, there are many levels to, to this, to this resolution. Yeah. I think there's also like this, this ridiculous phenomenon of kind of art being trendy right now. So, or like people starting to engage with it more. I was at a Guggenheim event recently, um, this art after dark thing that they do, which is, which is great. It brings in a whole like much wider community to the museum. Um, but if if anybody there actually looked at an Agnes Martin painting for more than 30 seconds that they were facing away from it to take a selfie with their bestie, I'm not sure. That I, I didn't see that happening at all. And I think a lot of museums work into their exhibition schedules and galleries also these immersive shows that are great for selfie taking. They're, they end up being the blockbuster shows that bring, like you said, a wider audience in. So, yeah, it's... I mean, Pippaloti Reese is a good example. I mean, yes. I do think Instagram was one factor in there being a line around the corner and many weekends have passed by the new museum. Though also the new museum is really badly kind of designed. This is like a notorious thing. So <laughs> That's, yeah. true. That's true. So the lines, yeah, are, like, yeah, you can yeah. get a line for like any yeah. show. <laughs> for for sure. Than, yeah. I, I was actually told by a museum uh, person recently that they actually have now a strategy behind having a photo op in every one of their exhibitions so that really? people... It's like a marketing strategy. It's free. Yeah, yeah, them. it is free marketing. But, so you know, I think like may- maybe one one photo op is okay, but let's make the rest of the exhibition about looking. All right, number four, find a more direct way to get funding to artists. 
So for this one, we were thinking um, in part about the ostentatious galas that happen in the art world. They absolutely serve a purpose, but often artists are kind of left in the dark as to how that funding, how those funds that have been drummed up by the gala are actually helping them. Um, so we wanted to get at that issue with, with this resolution. I think you could say the same same thing about benefit auctions. They are really, they're important. You know, I don't want to take it away from them, but I know in conversations with artists, the number of works they give to benefit auctions, sometimes it's less clear how, uh, how this is then in the end supporting them and their practice and their work and really coming back to them. And well, they probably get a tax benefit. They, that's actually, that's, that's um, murky territory now as well. It's not easy for artists to get a tax benefit huh. from from donations yeah work um and so yeah i think i think this is a question you know the art world is a lot about the social part of the art world and and that's what many museums rely on and other institutions nonprofits as well um but if in this thinking and this programming around special events determining how to actually get uh funding more clearly or directly back to the artists is is something i you know we thought should be touched on well, we also kind of touched on this in the last podcast of 2016 when we were talking about the museums growing uh, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that not taking into account how, you know, the supporting the artists and the people who make um, exhibitions happen. Um, I don't know how exactly how exactly this is going to take place. I don't know if either of you have, have a very clear idea of, you know, next steps here. Well, I keep thinking, honestly, about platforms like Kickstarter and, um, you know, having more artists engage with platforms like that and um, and having more collectors explore different kinds of patronage, um, the production, like support of the production of an ambitious artwork, for instance. Yeah, I was also thinking Kickstarter as well. Um, you know, obviously there are a lot of platforms that do that, so or platform like Kickstarter, but uh, I remember... And I, I don't know if they still do this, but um, organizations or museums used to put together sort of a highlights from kicks of of on Kickstarter of the things they they want to put their their weight behind, and not necessarily in terms of actually supporting it uh, financially or organizing it, but really saying this is something that we want to bring to your attention. Um, there there are a lot of other ways. I, d- I do think even if it's not about actually giving money to artists, having some programming that benefit the artists. The Museum of Arts and Design uh, in New York City have actual working studios where artists can can be part of that residency. I, I don't know for the amount of time, but you know programs like this that actually directly benefit the artists. All right, we're out of time. So next up, number five, break down the hierarchy for what passes as art in our culture. And I think we're <laughs> we're talking about this and, and talking about the kind of art with a capital A idea. I think there's no there's no doubt that people in the art world have strong opinions about what's good art and what's bad art, and that's fine. Um, but what too often happens is that people get kind of cast off as having terrible taste or not knowing what's good, and um, and that's just kind of alienating. And and you know I think is is not taken with as much credence as this idea that you know if you ex- if you accept a much more expansive view of what um, art and culture can be, you know slowly the people who you know, those on the inside of the art world might think have terrible taste could be walked along towards what is, you know, potentially more sophisticated art in some, you know, very uh, art critic-y way. Um, 
but you know the the way to almost assure that that's not going to happen is to tell somebody like oh, you're stupid yeah and I, I also think it's interesting you know to to not see uh you know a work of art ending up in a museum as as the the ultimate end final point that places it above uh any sort of critique like it's finally made it etc and sometimes you know uh some of the things that uh i heard said about you know, Jeff Koons in relationship to like Duchamp during um, his Whitney retrospective, I was sort of like, it raised an eyebrow. So I think that certain artists are extended uh, a broad latitude while other people who are creating works outside of the cultural mainstream are not given any sort of, of uh, benefit of this kind of critical treatment because they're just not occupying the spaces that immediately confer legitimacy. Well, and I, I feel like I could go back... Um even 10 years ago and having this conversation around different mediums and what mediums were considered fine art. And, and I think even in the last few years, those boundaries have, have, have really been crossed and broken and people who are also working in the commercial world versus the art world. I mean, you have really respected art photographers who are also making commercial work. It's, it's like the, the, the boundaries are more blurred. And I, I think that, um, that we just need to, to not, pigeonhole or not box in what what the capital a r is or even create that scenario of capital a to lowercase a and that's time next number six end price inflation period i feel like alex is the one who's gonna have some <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um oh geez well you know i mean i think this is something that we've been talking about for several years now um, but, you know, you talk to collectors out there in the market and people are hesitant to buy things when they get to be, you know, over ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. And you can find some pretty young, not that established artwork for over $30,000 now. Um, there's another interesting part about that that, you know, you have to, I was reading an interesting article um, before the holidays on Marion Goodman um, having to push up her prices for Richter so that there isn't as much of a spread between um, the auction prices and the primary market prices, um, which is, is understandable because you don't want somebody getting into it thinking that they can flip it and make a buck. But on the other hand, um, it just, it creates this cycle of, you know, and I, I Probably for an established artist like Richter, it's not as bad. If you're talking about five million or three million, you're you're still talking about five million or three million. Um, but when you get down into young artist work, it's it's just gotten to be a bit too much, and you see collectors just really fatiguing. Um, you know, people who used to be able to buy, you know, hundred works a year or something, are now like, yeah, I can I can get like five, six. Yeah, it was really interesting. I used to work in art galleries, and. Um that price inflation is, is like you said, Alex, alienating for a lot of collectors. I worked in galleries where we were representing very emerging or underknown artists. And, um, and we felt the pressure to raise their prices very quickly because the prices of other of their of their peers of their contemporaries was skyrocketing. It's like the fake auction. momentum. Yeah, it's it was all it's fake ridiculous. momentum, and it was because their markets were being manipulated, and that's a whole other conversation that we've all had before. Um, but yeah, it just you know less money was going to artists who weren't hot in any given moment that's because yeah, yeah. yeah because. Um, because collectors just thought the prices were too high. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's something that as many people even think about and not something I was even thinking about, but that by raising prices, you're actually just putting more more money behind the hottest names and it has this kind of narrowing effect on what's out there. So that that's like even more detrimental. Yeah. Okay, let's leave it there. So number seven, 
let's be genuinely committed to diversity in the art world. Yeah, I can jump in here. I, I think it's, it's, let's not, you know, make this a come and go. This is popular right now and I'm going to create my all women shows or, you know, other ways of sort of taking something that, um, I think it's the genuine is really key there and, and to say that, that we will only make progress as, as if this is continually part of the conversation as opposed to part of the conversation because it's in fashion right now or it's a trend right now. Um, and, and, and yeah, I'd say that that's sort of the, the thesis of, of this point. Yeah, Tess, um, our, our colleague, had a great piece uh, that came out over the break um, about the kind of this being a year for women in art um, and she referenced a piece in The Atlantic that was pointing out that there's a year of women in the world every 10 years or so. And I think it's 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 an example of kind of the amnesia around kind of recognizing achievements and getting very excited about this, whether it's women or people of color, or et cetera, um, and then actually not institutionalizing that. So there's like been a trend for the past couple of years in the art world around contemporary African art. How do we make that not just be something that there's a market conversation about and there's momentum behind and then people move on to the next thing and it slumps back down and then in 10 years, you know, people come back around and are back back at this market and, you know, finding ways to actually take the momentum that we've seen in, in 2016 and 2015 too and really tie that in in a, in a long-term way is, is super crucial. Yes, I think systemic change is probably <laughs> probably the answer i mean i was yeah. reading a book about the art world uh, art institutions in the 60s late 60s and early 70s um, which came under increasing pressure from uh, black power movements to diversify uh, their staff and that never really materialized what materialized instead were very important great culturally grounded institutions um uh but but that systemic change that would sort of ensure that you know there's a there's diversity um, in the gallery space in in big institutions like the Met the Guggenheim the MoMA uh, never never materialized and I think that's what must happen if this is if it's never going to go away and collectors also need to think about diversity I would say when they're putting their collections together um, you know they're yes, there needs to be a diversification across the exhibition programming, but collectors across the board also need to to think about collecting beyond the canon. All right, time for number eight, empower artists who are making positive change in the world. It's something we started talking about in our last podcast to close the year, um, that politicians and cultural organizations are starting to or, or have for some time but maybe have um, focused more on looking at artists as thought leaders and um, with this point we wanted to highlight that and and also say that that should continue um, that 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 is a really exciting um, development yeah I mean we, you envision artists behind the podium at a UN conference or or in conversation with the president of the United States or other other um, other you know dignitaries around the world that that there is an aspect or, or a, a mindset of artists and and moving outside of sort of typical parameters that could give us broader insight into some of these issues or new insight rather a new perspective well and figuring out the funding structures to do that i think is really important you know there are several organizations that really do help support these things um tba 21 in vienna is always doing really 
ambitious and interesting things that really have no you know direct exhibition component or oftentimes don't have a direct exhibition component but i think that as the art world is is an object focused in industry with these uh iterant exhibitions that happen um figuring out ways that we can also support things that don't have any like final product or don't you know end up being able to be um sold or even shown in a physical way um is really important right and and we wrote about actually a few uh, nonprofits in new york city which are really committed to fostering socially engaged art. One of those was A Blade of Grass, which provided money to an artist who created a very sort of incredibly utilitarian app to fight wage theft. And eventually this app got picked up by the AFL-CIO, by the New York State Department of Labor, by like groups that I would wager don't often um, find themselves working with artists. So so there's really, you know, uh, I don't think that, that artists necessarily... Uh, should limit themselves in terms of in terms of how they want to affect change. I think they can really really make an on the ground difference. Okay, so number nine, end plagiarism of artist work. I'm gonna shoot that one right back yeah. to you, Isaac. <laughs> You're the expert. Yeah, I mean, obviously, 2016, uh, you saw a swelling of criticism of you know big fashion brands taking the work of small independent artists and designers. You know, after I wrote a piece about that, I was kind of curious about how actually uh, that stops. I think social media pressure is maybe part of that. Uh, Artists being more aware of their rights is part of that. And I also think it's important to not only imagine a world where, you know, big companies don't steal from little artists, but also uh, elevate those those artists. Um, because a lot of them who I spoke to said, you know, I'd have loved to do a collaboration with American Apparel, Nike, you know, whoever it was, whatever the company was, uh, if only they had asked me. So I think sort of both stopping the practice and, and reframing the relationship would be a nice thing. I'm not holding my breath, though. And and overall, I, I, this speaks to the responsibility of corporations in a broader way, too. Um, you know, this isn't a new conversation. Uh, this isn't just specific to the fashion world, but what responsibility do these, do these corporations have uh, to individuals, to smaller companies? You, you constantly see this, this poaching or this... Um, this type of behavior, I, I, I think, you know, we as a, as consumers also have power, we need to, to um, use that power as well. And what you said before, Isaac, I think also goes back to the breaking down the hierarchy point, um, because a lot of these artists aren't what we would consider, you know, it's not like, you know, people are stealing works by Basquiat or Damien Hirst or Jeff Koons to put on a t-shirt. Um, those people have very healthy licensing agreements. It's people who are, you know, an illustrator that has a cool blog that is pretty popular and then there sees their designs on T-shirts. It's um, all kinds of different things. And it's it's not just strictly artists either. You know, people's creative concepts get um, stolen by much bigger producers all the time. Um, but, you know, how do we also raise that where it's not just somebody you know this designer at a com- big company saying oh yeah i found these things on the internet i can probably just take them how do we get them to recognize that this is a creative person whose work you are stealing um and they are at the same level as you i feel like i used to hear this all the time at um at uh, open houses for graduate schools and people would go to open houses and this is more in design and, and fashion and other things and now it feels like because of the internet it's really it's become more ubiquitous this is a side note but it's just interesting so that's time and drum roll please for the last resolution number 10 give a living wage for entry-level arts jobs 
And I think this is also tied into the systemic change that we sort of talked about Mm -hmm. um, earlier as well. So who wants to jump in? I'll jump in because um, I experienced this personally when I first moved to New York. I, um, you know, this was typical of an entry level job in the gallery world was offered a very low, very low salary. Um, So low that that the person offering me this salary said, you know, I hope you have a way to subsidize your income or like have some free housing or something because you're probably not going to be able to live in New York on this. Um, that's something that so many of my friends and peers experienced when they first moved to New York and entered into the art scene. It's, it's, um, something friends still experience on and uh it's an issue (laughs) and i think if you talk about kind of having a more diverse art world or a more inclusive art world you know if you can only get a job in the new york art world if you grew up in manhattan and have a trust fund um it's probably not gonna not gonna work out so well um you know these are like oftentimes low margin positions so there are like business reasons behind why salaries are low on the other hand i think businesses could do a lot better become more efficient businesses and offer their employees a lot better situations. And yeah, so you talk about systemic change and and these are often the root of of those changes. I think being able to open uh, a entry level arts position up to a diverse group pool of candidates is is very very much in my opinion part of that that systemic change. Yeah, what's what's also interesting I think is that there what needs to happen along with the tangible changes of people being paid more is sort of a recognition that, you know, working three unpaid internships before your first job does not make you a hero. It makes you an exploited worker who was also yeah. lucky enough to have money on the side to subsidize that. I mean, I think I hear people today being like talking about almost proudly, well, you know, obviously with a sense of annoyance, but almost proudly um, um, that they meant that they, you know, had to do so many unpaid internships. And I don't think anyone should should be put in that position ever. You know, I think it's it's just a continual lowering of the bar of what putting in your dues means. And even beyond just a living wage in arts jobs, you know, I think it's become so the norm in the creative sector to just expect you might not get paid, even if you have a full-time position. There are plenty of companies in New York that that takes place at routinely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it sh- creative shouldn't have to live in that, you know, liminal space of, oh, do I have enough money saved up if my check doesn't come this month or if I don't get paid for this freelance assignment or if I don't, if my gallerist doesn't pay me for the work that they sold, which, again, happens all the time. All right, that is all 10 of our resolutions. We'll stay tuned to see how many actually uh, come to fruition, but hopefully all. Thanks to our guests this week. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. See you next time. Our producer this week was editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>